Names are obviously very important. People want to be known by their name. I remember when Karen and I were, uh, we found out that we were going to have our children, four of them, that we spent a lot of time talking about the name of each of those children. Uh, all their names have some kind of family tie. Uh, people have different reasons for naming their children, the names that they've given them. In the Old Testament, usually names were given uh, around circumstances that had taken place in that person's lives or in the lives of the parents. And so there was a memory that was created by the name of that child related to the experience of their life. Um, when I think about my own name, I was named after a doctor in Oklahoma City. My father played football at Baylor University. He was a very good football player, and he uh, often would speak in churches uh, in the south part of the country. They would invite him. Student groups would ask him to come and speak. And uh, he spoke in Oklahoma City uh, one weekend, and uh, a doctor in the church just took to my, my dad, and he uh, developed a relationship with him, and so much so that he paid for my father's education in seminary, which was a three-year program in Fort Worth. And uh, I, I had never met the man. I didn't really think much about it other than what my dad had told me at the time until I was 25 years of age and I was attending seminary myself, the same seminary. I was pastoring a small rural church in Oklahoma and uh, we met Dr. Neil Holden. My middle name is Holden. And we, we met for the first time and developed a relationship and uh, corresponded throughout the years. And it was really an amazing thing that of all the names that I could have been named, that my father chose to name me after a man who impacted his life so that he could get his education and begin to serve the Lord in ministry. All of us can think about how our names have impacted our lives, but we're going to look at the names of the Lord Jesus Christ I had not seen the full sermon bumper until this morning, the first hour, and the four primary names that appeared, Mighty, uh, excuse me, um, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, those are the four names that I want to look at over the next four weeks. They come from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage but I want to give you a little context of what's going on because it's very important, uh, the timing of these names. Israel is now, what we knew as Israel under King David, is now a divided kingdom. You have the ten northern tribes called Israel. Samaria is the capital of, of uh, Israel. And then you have the two southern tribes, which is known as Judah. The Messiah would come through the line of Judah. All the prophets warn different aspects of the exile period. And what that means is that Isaiah is unique in that he prophesied before anything ever happened what was going to happen to Judah in particular. Before the destruction of Jerusalem, he told them that there is going to be a destruction. Because of your sin and rebellion, God is going to judge you, and he's going to send you. You're going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. 
which took place in 586 B.C. The Assyrians came and took Israel in 722 B.C. So now all of those who were known as the children of God are in captivity under, at this point, Babylonian rule. But Isaiah says that not only are you going to be judged for your sin and you're going to be sent off to a faraway place, the nations will also be judged as well. And then there's going to be a remnant of Jews who are going to, be, who are going to experience a return back to Jerusalem, to the land of Judah, and they're going to have a particular ruler. He's going to be a different kind of ruler. He's not going to be the same kind of king that they've had before. And he describes who this person is and the type of rule that he's going to have. But he gives this ruler four particular names. Now, there are many names of Jesus that we could uh, talk about and, and I could preach about over the next several weeks. But I'll, I want to take time to speak of these four names in the order that Isaiah gives them. So Isaiah chapter 9, I want to begin reading in verse 6. Let me say that, that they've heard him say that there's going to be this judgment. They're living in darkness, but a light is going to come, and, uh, which is the ruler, and it's going to be a time of rejoicing. Now, why is there going to be a time of rejoicing? Because he gives them a message of hope, and here it is. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now notice he begins by saying that there's going to be a birth of a child that is given by God. It's not a child that is given by man. This is going to be a different kind of child. It's a child that's given by God. It is for us and it is to us. So there's a specific calling on this child's life. It's a unique individual. Notice the names of the child. He says he is going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting or eternal father, and the prince of peace. Now, we're post-New Testament, and so we can see what has happened. But you find it interesting, though, that of all the names that God gives through Isaiah, of describing the Messiah who is to come, we know him as Jesus Christ, that he says that he's a wonderful counselor, but that he is a mighty God, that he is God. He's going to be God in the flesh, as the word Emmanuel means, God with us, that he is our eternal father. We often think is God as our father, but the Lord Jesus, being God in the flesh, is our eternal father, and that he's the prince of peace. Now, there are four things that we know about the government of this child from Isaiah. Number one, that there will be limitless expansion of rule and prosperity. No one will ever be able to oppose him. And so what he is giving to us in these words, these adjectives that are being used, is that this is a different kind of kingdom in that it's eschatological in nature. It's not just for the immediate time frame of them returning to the land of Judah, 
But this type of rule and this type of kingdom is eternal in nature. It will last forever. And so he's really speaking of what's going to happen at end times. He will reign, secondly, on the throne of David and reestablish David's kingdom. In other words, he'll be a messianic ruler. David was, uh, spoke of a, a Messiah that would come. And it's going to be through David's line. His rule will be based on justice and righteousness. This is just the opposite of what Judah is experiencing under the rule of King Ahaz. So they know what, that there is injustice and unrighteousness by Ahaz and under his rule. The people are experiencing that. They're being oppressed by him. So he's saying that there's a different kind of ruler, and his rule will be true justice and true righteousness. He says that this ruler will reign forever. Now, Isaiah gives absolute confidence that this is going to happen. Notice he says that he is that God is going to make it happen, that he is sovereign, that he is omnipotent. In other words, he has the power to make it happen, and he is going to do it. Now, God gives this child the name Wonderful Counselor. Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. He's going to live a sinless life. He was able to live a sinless life because he was born of a virgin. Had he not been born of a virgin, he could never have lived a sinless life meaning he could not be our sacrifice, our perfect unblemished sacrifice on the cross. So the virgin birth is a big deal. It, it, it had to happen that way in order for the Messiah to be sinless and be the sacrificial lamb for our sin. Uh, he says that he's going to die on the cross, that he's going to be buried, and that he's going to be raised three days later. Before his death and resurrection, Jesus said that several things are going to happen. And one of the things that he said is going to happen is that there's going to be a counselor that is going to come. Let me give you a few examples. In John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. John 14, 26, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, now he defines who this counselor is. The Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. John 15, 26, he says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Again, notice you, you, Jesus is affirming the Trinity, the Godhead that existed before anything ever was, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. And remember, the word comfort or counselor can also be translated counselor, uh, comforter. It's the word paraclete. It means one who comes alongside. So Jesus is saying that that I, as the counselor, am going to leave. I'm the one, he's named the wonderful counselor, but I'm going to leave and leave you another counselor, which is my spirit, who will be walking alongside of you day by day, moment by moment, and will always, I will always be with you. Even though I'll be in heaven, I am leaving one with you who will always be with you, this counselor. Now, what does this name mean? Well, today is only a two-point sermon. I know it's rare that I ever do that. But today, I'm going to give you a two-point sermon. Number one, Jesus Christ is wonderful. 
This is what this name means. It could be translated a wonder of a counselor or wondrous counselor or a miraculous counselor. Now, what would make Jesus a wonder? What would make him wonderful? Well, first of all, the wonder of his teaching. And let me just share a few things that he taught that made him a wonder in his teaching. He taught that he was God's son and that God was his father. Now, the Jews, the religious leaders, when they heard that, claimed that he was blasphemous, and that's what eventually put him on the cross, among other things. And it was our sin that put him on the cross, but in the context of what was taking place at the time, he claimed, he taught that he was God's son and that God was his father. They would all say that Abraham was their father, and there's a great dialogue that he has with the religious leaders to prove to them that they are under Satan's rule. Satan is their father, not God the Father. He also taught that the downcast and the abandoned would be loved and accepted by God. They would not be shamed. They would not be shunned as the religious leaders would do of those who were the outcast of that day and time. He taught about the kingdom of God that it was a different kind of kingdom. It took a while for the disciples to figure that out, and really they didn't figure it out until the period between his resurrection and his ascension. Those 40 days is when they began to understand what his kingdom was all about, that it was a spiritual kingdom, it was not a political kingdom, and that it was universal. It was for anyone. It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Gentiles. That word is also translated ethnic groups. All peoples for all times, would be able to be a part of this kingdom. He taught that you must have childlike faith and humility to enter the kingdom of God. The pride and arrogance of the religious leaders, they would, they would be prideful of what they knew, their intellect, all the rest, their position, their power. He said, that's not going to matter. You must have a childlike faith. You know, ultimately, you, you can learn all that you want to learn about God. But ultimately, it takes a step of faith. And that step is a childlike faith. We, we weren't there when it all happened. We, we haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it. In fact, Jesus said, as I've said before, that it's great about those who have seen and believed, but there's a greater blessing to those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. So we receive the greater blessing by taking the childlike step of faith. That's what he taught. He also taught the paradox principles that you have to die in order to live. That the last shall be first, which they did not understand. But he taught and showed this great paradox principle. What also makes him a wonder other than the wonder of his teaching, the wonder of his power? In Mark 1, 27... The Bible says, then they were all amazed. So they began to argue with one another, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him, the demons. Remember this wonderful story of the man who was paralyzed. He has his four friends, and they trying to get to Jesus. The house is crowded. They can't get in, so they go up on top of the roof, tear the roof off, and they lower this man in front of Jesus, and he heals them, heals him. 
And then there he says, Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, We have seen incredible things today. You see, at that time he had great power to command the attention of men, and he still has great power to command the attention of men and women, boys and girls. This morning I had the privilege of baptizing a man, Aaron Moore. It's a great story. Aaron and his wife, Dana, are members of our church. They've been here for some time. Uh, but he uh, came to see me this past week, and he said that uh, about a month ago, through circumstances in his life, he came to realize that he knew about God, but he didn't know God, although he's a member of this church. You see, being a member of the church doesn't get you into heaven. That doesn't have anything to do with it. That's being religious. Now, it's an important thing to be a member of a church. The Bible teaches that we should be a member of a church. But that's after something else has happened, that we have a personal relationship with God through Christ and that we appropriate the work of Christ on the cross for our sin and what he did for us. And But Aaron, he said, I came to that point of realizing that I needed to really surrender my full life to Christ and I was able to baptize him this morning and he came to recognize that. So what happened? He recognized the voice of God. You see, God knows your name. You may feel like nobody knows your name. You were given a name but maybe that name has been forgotten but he knows your name. And Aaron heard his name called Aaron. Aaron. And that's what he did for you. He called your name and your heart turned. The Spirit of God began to open your eyes and your ears to himself. And he drew you unto him. So he still has the power to do that. Isn't it an amazing thing? It's just an amazing thing to me that he takes a person who is absolutely dead in their sin and he gives them life. He's changed the world. Millions upon millions have experienced the transforming power of Christ. They're still in awe. They're still in wonder and you should be. You should still have a sense of wonder and awe about the power of God that's transformed your life. What also makes him a wonder is the wonder of his love. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now notice what he says, that you can know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge. It doesn't make sense what God has done. It surpasses knowledge that he would allow his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us who were sinners. We've offended him. We've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. And it makes absolutely no sense that God would let his son come out of his love and out of his mercy. But that's what he did for us. 
John writes in John 3, 11, 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him, talking about Lazarus, how Jesus loved Lazarus. John writes in John 13, 1, having <clears throat> loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We wonder at the sacrificial love that Christ has for the human race, for all sinners, but it ought to mean something very special to the one individual, to you who has sinned. Paul said, he loved me. And we say, yes, he loves me, even me. You may feel like that you're too far gone, that God could not forgive you of that sin, but he loves you. And he's proven that by creating you so that he can know you and have a relationship with you, but also that you could experience forgiveness of sin through Christ. His teaching his power, and his love. That's what makes him a wonder. But notice, secondly, Jesus Christ is a wonderful counselor. He's, he, what does that mean? He's a, 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 a wonderful counselor. Well, a counselor gives advice. A counselor is somebody who is wise. They help guide us. They help lead us through circumstances of life. Isaiah writes, Isaiah eleven two: The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah writes in chapter 28, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He gives wonderful advice. He gives great wisdom. Listen, we need that. I don't know about you, but I need that. And I want his wisdom, his counsel. And he possesses all wisdom, all understanding, all knowledge, and that he's able to give that. We need that. Now, how is he able to be a wonderful counselor? First of all, he is the Word. He is the Word. That means he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Secondly, he is the truth, as he said in John 14, 6. That means what he does know and has communicated to us is truth. I don't have to wonder, is it partly true? Uh, is it somewhat true? Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's true for a certain length of time. No, it is truth because he is truth. And he is the light. That means that that light leads us, that light guides us, but listen, that light also exposes us. It undoes us. And it's a good thing. That light goes into the crevices of our heart and exposes the sin, the darkness that is there. And we should embrace that. We come before him in confession and repentance of our sin, and he forgives us of that sin. But out of his love, this wonderful counselor exposes. Isn't it great to sit down in front of a counselor, and the counselor says, here's your problem. You may not like that he exposes something that is dark inside of you, but, but the wise counselor knows that that's what has to happen, that he's able to help you and to bring healing to your life by being able to see, the, see what is really going on, to bring light to your situation. And that's what the light of Christ does. He exposes the darkness that is in our hearts. So with that, him being that kind of counselor, uh, have you ever thought about what counsel would Jesus give us today? What, what's the counsel that he would give you and that he would give me? Well, it's what he's already said. First of all, I think he would say to us today, Come to me. Come to me. Find rest. As he said in Matthew 11. 
Now, what does that mean? It means he's the object of your questions. He's the object of your search. He's the object of your hope. And so if you're here today and you're wanting to find rest for your soul, then it's the greatest invitation that's ever been offered to a man, to a woman, child, to come to him. Secondly, he would say, follow me. He would say, leave where you are and follow me. Now, it doesn't mean that you, you sell everything that you have. Now, if he told you to do that, that's what he would ask you to do. But it doesn't mean that you have to move from your location. But in your heart, in your soul, you're leaving everything that influences you. And you're only being influenced by him. You're following him. You're denying yourself. You're taking up your cross daily and following him. John 8, 12, Jesus said, Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's great hope. Knowing I don't have to walk in darkness, even when it seems dark, that he will guide me through the darkness. Follow me. He would also say, trust me. He would say, I know what is right. I know what is best. Have you ever said that to your child? They want to know why? Just trust me. Now, at a certain age, that doesn't work, right? But we're always a child of God. We're always a child of God. And there are times that we don't understand, and he's going to say, just trust me. Because of who he is, we can. John 14, 1, he says, trust in God. You trust in God. Trust also in me. He would also tell us, love your enemies. Specifically, he would say, pray for them in Matthew 5. And then he would say, forgive your enemies. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. What do you need to do? The counsel of Christ to you is to pray for those who've hurt you, who've wounded you, and to forgive them. He would also say, pray about it. In fact, he would say, pray a lot. Pray often. He would tell you to pray without stopping. Always pray. Jesus said in Matthew 6, pray to your father. In Mark 14, to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, watch and pray. Watch and pray. He would also say, you need to share your story. Share the gospel. Acts 1.8, he told them, us as well, that we are to be his witnesses. A witness in a court of law shares what they've experienced concerning the circumstance of the trial. And so all of us have a story. If you have a story, you're a Christian. If you don't have a story, you're not a Christian. See, if you just tell somebody Jesus died on the cross for our sins and uh, that he arose from the dead, well, those are facts about Jesus, but it doesn't say anything about what he's done for you. When you tell your story, you're saying, I was walking down a path and one day my life was changed forever. And there's a circumstance of how that happened. Somebody shared the story of Christ with you. You were in a church service. You were at home alone. You were reading God's word. And something happened that drew your attention to him. Again, you can be a religious person who knows about him. That's what Aaron and I talked about when we was in my office. He said that. I knew about him, but I really didn't know him. And so it's more than just the facts about who Jesus is. You have a story. I was one way, and now I'm different. And so, what's your story? You need to tell your story. 
And the greatest influence in our culture is not a preaching standing up on Sunday morning, preaching to a crowd in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. The greatest influence in this culture and in our community is by you going out telling your story to people that God intersects with your life. That's where the power of evangelism takes place. It's not me praying and hoping that somebody shows up here who needs to hear it. The Bible doesn't say come and hear. It says go and tell. So we all need to be going and sharing and being a witness for Christ. I need to move on. What would Jesus say? He would say stop worrying in Matthew 6. You're worried about all these things. Worry's not going to change a thing. Worry's distracting you from what you ought to be doing. Worry is an idol in your life. Jesus said all these things in Matthew 6. So he says, stop worrying. Seek me. And all these other things are going to take place. They're going to be, God's going to provide for you. But worrying's not going to change the situation that you're in. Stop worrying. He would say, serve others. Serve everyone. Serve all different types of people. Just don't serve those who are like you. There needs to be the cross-cultural evangelism and serving of others for them to experience the love of Christ. That's what we're going to do Saturday. I'll speak to that in just a moment, but Saturday we're going to be in our community and we're going to be talking to all different kinds of people and, and expressing the love of Christ to them. He would say, get close to my people. Get close to my people. Jesus said, I will build my church. He values the church, the role of the church. And so you need to get close to his people. You come to church on Sunday, you get involved in small groups, you meet maybe with one or two people, but you get close to God's people. We need the support and encouragement, the help of God's people. John 17, this great priestly prayer, Jesus says, to his father, may they be made completely one so the world may know you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. How are they going to know the love of, of, uh, of God is by knowing and seeing how we love each other. They will know that you, uh, we are, you are my disciple if you love one another, Jesus said. So there's great power in getting close to God's people as a way of witnessing to our world. Jesus would also say, study my word. Again, in that prayer in John 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means to mature or to grow. You're set apart. It means holy, actually, in its root. And so how do we become holy? We do so by investing time in the word of God. God has spoken to us. This is his love letter to us. This is his counsel. This is his wisdom. And so much of what we're seeking in life is found, the answer's found in his word. We just don't know it. So study his word. And then, in the same vein, walk in the truth of his word. Jesus would tell us, walk in truth. John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We live in a culture where people say, I have the freedom to do this or that. It's becoming worse. And it's not going to get better. The Bible predicts that. But they're saying, I have the freedom to do this and this and this and this. But what they don't realize is that that freedom leads them into bondage. It begins to control them. 
They're under its power, demonic power. And Jesus says, you can know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Walk in that truth. Jesus would say, stay humble. In Matthew 18, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Jews prided themselves in their knowledge. They were arrogant. And he says, no, 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 that's not the way in. You've got to humble yourself like this little child. You can know all the facts of the universe. You can know all the facts about God himself. The way he operates and all the rest, which we'll never will. But even if you knew all of that, none of that is going to matter unless you humble yourself like a child and take a step of faith, trusting him. Jesus would say, live in my power not your own, in my resurrection victorious power. In Acts 1.8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit of God comes into our lives at the moment of salvation, and we're able to have the power of God residing in us. He would also say, my vernacular would say it like this, get happy. You see, your attitude is the window of your heart. If you want to know what a person's heart really is like, watch their attitude. Jesus said in John 15, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He said in John 16, your sorrow will turn to joy. And then in verse 22, no one will rob you of your joy. Christians ought to be joyful. Happy is really a, not a good word. But we should be joyful. He would say, get joyful. There are happy moments and unhappy moments, but in all moments we can have his joy, knowing that he's in control, that he's at work, and whatever it is that is taking place. The last thing Jesus would say, among other things, but he would say, glorify God with everything that you do. John 17, again in this prayer, he said, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And God wants you to do the same thing. He wants you to complete the work that he's given you and in that, glorifying him. Now, is it any wonder why he's called a wonderful counselor? What a perfect name for the Lord Jesus, for this ruler, this Messiah who's going to come. He is a wonder, but he's also a wonderful counselor and gives us the counsel that we need in life. He knows exactly what to say in the situation that you're facing. Several years ago, there was a woman named Helen Johnson. She was at a grocery store with her two children, her niece and her two grandchildren. They all lived together. She was standing in an aisle in that grocery store in great despair because she wanted to buy a dozen eggs. They had not eaten in two days. None of the family had eaten in two days. And she was 50 cents short of buying a dozen eggs. So she chose to do something. She said, I, I took five eggs and I put them in my, my uh, jacket pocket. And she said uh, that it wasn't a good idea. I'm a bad thief because for her good fortune, all of those eggs broke. So she went to the cashier and she was paying for the rest of what she had bought. And the cashier noticed Things were dripping out of the pockets and said, what happened? And she came clean and she explained what had happened while she waited for the police to come. 
Officer William Stacy arrived at the scene. He walked over, he heard the story. And remarkably, he didn't take her to the police station. He paid for the dozen eggs. And she, she was overcome with gratitude, and she said, what could I ever do to repay you for what you've done? And this was his counsel. This was his advice. Don't ever do this again. You know, it reminds me of somebody else who said that, right? The words of Jesus, who said to the adulterous woman, don't do this again. Go and sin no more. Well, that wasn't the end of the story. Little did she know there was a guy in the store who videoed the whole thing and posted it online, and it went viral. And all of a sudden, the police station is getting all these phone calls. Toys are coming in for the kids. And then the next day, two truckloads of food are driven to her house and unloaded and filled in her pantry. For somebody who didn't have anything and now had the cupboards full, she was overwhelmed by what took place in her life. Now, if a police officer can give that kind of counsel to a woman in need, how much greater will our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, give us the counsel that we need in the circumstances of life that we face? What he says to you, Billy, right? It will be perfect, and it will bless your life beyond all expectations. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There might be somebody here today who would say, Pastor, I've never given my heart to Christ. I'm in need of this kind of relationship with God so that I can experience all that you've described today. And I know that I need that in my own life personally. Well, in just a moment... When we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to come to one of the pastors here at the front, and they're going to be able to help you as you give your heart to Christ. Even if you're not sure what to say or do, you come, they'll, they'll know what to do, and they'll help you. Many in this room know the Lord, and you love the Lord, but, but you need His help right now. You need His wise counsel. You've been worrying. You've been anxious. You've not been resting. You're trying to figure it out yourself. You feel weak. You're tired. You need the counsel of the Lord. Although he knows about the circumstance that you're facing, he wants you to come to him and give it to him. Why not this morning leave it right here in this place? This is a place where you can unload the burden and give it to him. So just talk to the Lord. Share your heart. Share your burden. Ask Him to help you. Lord, give me the light. Give me the wisdom. Give me the counsel that I need this morning. And then you'll begin to experience the joy of the Lord in your heart. There might be others that God is leading you to become part of our church family. And we would love for you to come and be a part of what God is doing in our church and through our church as you've heard this morning from Philip but other things that are taking place we invite you to come Jesus said get close to my people the church is important 
There are others that you just need to pray here at the altar alone. Maybe you want someone to pray for you. You share that burden with us, we'll pray for you. Father, thank you that you're the burden bearer, that you take the load and lift it from us, that you help us in our time of need, that you give us the right counsel at the right time. Lord, help us and help these who need to make commitments now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's quietly stand.